<laughs> Good teacher. He really seems to care. About what, I have no idea. Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, Tulane Law Professor, co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport. This episode tackles the Operation Varsity Blues college admission scandal, arguably the biggest non-political scandal of the century. Federal prosecutors charged 50 people, including high-profile celebrities, parents, coaches, and ringleader Rick Singer, with participating in a scheme to cheat the college admission system by rigging SAT scores, posing as athletes, and bribing coaches. I'm joined by Melissa Korn, reporter for the Wall Street Journal and co-author of Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal, which was published earlier this year. And for those of you who might be binge listening to this pod after the fact, this was recorded in the year 2020. Melissa's book uncovers all the sordid details and the collision between college admissions, college sports, overzealous parents, and the law. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I want to jump right in and ask you about your book, Unacceptable. It's an incredible book. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about a subject I thought I knew a lot about already. And it got me thinking about a lot of different things that I'd like to cover as we go on. Tell me just to start, what was it that that drew you to actually write a full-length book rather than your more typical short-form pieces? Yeah, so usually I write stories for the Wall Street Journal that are no more than 2,000 words, often five to 800 words. So a book is a much bigger undertaking, and it was a little daunting. But my co-author, Jennifer Levitz, and I, we knew pretty much from the first day the story broke that there was so much more to say about what was happening beyond what was in this FBI affidavit that detailed these wiretap phone calls, beyond what was in the criminal complaints, beyond any of the court transcripts you would ever get. And that this scandal didn't live in a vacuum. And in order to really tell the story of the scandal, you needed to tell the story of shifts in American higher education and admissions in this anxiety around getting into the right school. And for that, you need enough pages for a book. I think we knew pretty quickly, like the first day the scandal broke, we were approached by literary agents asking if we would be interested in doing a book, which is not the way this normally happens. And we're very grateful for the ease with which we got a book deal and had it optioned for a TV show. And it was all kind of a whirlwind. Uh, Yeah, we're excited for that. We don't know if it'll develop yet, but we'll see. We just knew that there was so much more to say. And Jennifer is a great investigative reporter, and I've covered higher ed for a number of years. So we kind of put our minds together and went into a Google Doc and got started. You mentioned the richness and the depth of the story, and and you could probably have written another three or four books, and maybe you will, about the story. And and if your show gets picked up, you might have multiple seasons, just in all the different paths it could take you down. But I was trying to think as I was reading it and then taking notes on it and thinking back to when the story broke, is this the biggest non-political non-murder related story of the decade. I couldn't think of a bigger, because it's not a, I remember where I was when I heard this story sort of moment, because it kind of came out uh, bits and pieces at a time. I mean, I remember where I was when I heard the story, but yeah. (laughs) You do. 
Okay. I was sitting so maybe my, it's for you. I was sitting at my desk and just told my colleague who sits next to me, I really hope it's a quiet day today. Yeah, so much for that. But I for OJ, I remember exactly where I was and for, for big events like that. So it's not quite on that level, but just from, I, I don't think from an education perspective, there's anything else that's come close to this, but from your time at the journal or, or just being in journalism, can you remember a bigger story? I can't, certainly not in my beat. I think the other big story of the last few years is the pandemic, obviously, but in terms of scandal or, or kind of a particular news event. What's the pandemic? Oh, you know, it's that heard. little thing. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that's leading us to do this from our homes right now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a non-pandemic related. That's a fair but, qualifier. But I do think this is kind of the biggest scandal we've seen in a very long time. That's not, as you said, a violent crime, a murder, something political. And it does touch on so many of the issues that so many people can relate to. And that's why I think there was such an audience for... People were just gobbling up the headlines in every story we were writing for the journal. The tabloids had us on their front pages. People were hungry for information about it. This was a, a crossover story because it was on ESPN and the front, the back when we used to have newspapers like that, the front and the back page. Sorry, I don't mean to take a shot at your industry, but the, my students do not understand the reference to the front page and the back. They're, they're, it's on the home page. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's on the sports website and the news website. Uh, so And the celebrity we'll website, in- right? Like it was, you know, yeah, it's kind exactly. of Access Hollywood was covering this as well. Right. As well. right, right. That's a good point. That's that whole other world of information. On that note, it's obviously a massive case, no matter who's involved. But does the story have the the juice and the legs if Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin are not involved? It's obviously still massive, but it felt like that at least pushed it into the the celebrity pages. Yeah, I think that elevated it. It probably drew people into the story who otherwise wouldn't have paid attention if it was just CEOs and lawyers and doctors. The Wall Street Journal would have definitely still written about it a great deal. and. Right. We, frankly, wrote fairly little about Felicity Huffman and Laurie Lachlan in the paper, and they don't get a ton of space in the book either. We thought some of the other families, some of the other stories were a little bit more richer, more interesting. I think celebrities did kind of bring it up a notch, and it certainly made the court part of things, the court appearances, just so much more of a circus. You know, I've, I'd been to hearings, I'd been to sentencings, I'd been to some of the guilty pleas for various people involved in the case. And the ones that had the kind of real celebrities, it was just a whole different ball game. Just the, the scrum was yeah. outrageous. For my view of that world is when I've covered some cases involving Tom Brady and, and other, and the, the crowd at, at the courthouse for that is like nothing they've ever seen. It's um, so I'd imagine this is pretty similar. There are a lot of themes in the book and we'll talk about some of them in more detail, but if I, if you had to pick one, what do you, what was the most, do you think meaningful overarching theme in the book? That it, it's almost a, a how not to parent sort of advice it, where your kids yeah. end up in college. Isn't a reflection on your worth as a parent. And I think a lot of these parents involved in the case kind of forgot that or didn't really couldn't know that. So I'd say that's definitely on the big themes of just kind of who's in charge of the college admissions process, who's running that show, who's 
driving the search process. And then the other big theme is the lack of oversight and admissions. We'll talk more about admissions and what else has gone on or is going on around college admissions. But on the parenting side, and I have two young children and I'm constantly fearing that I am a terrible parent, particularly during the pandemic and looking back at, I I remember one of my friends who does not have a child sent an email around early on in the pandemic, reminding us of the limits on screen (laughs) time. And I said, I'm going to block you from my email. I cannot. The limit is 24 um, hours, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So the, from the parenting angle, although Felicity Huffman, as you said, was, certainly and with not the the most egregious uh, offender in this case, but her backstory as a worried parent and as a self-conscious parent was so fascinating to me because exactly. And and we view just like athletes, we view these celebrities as they're, they have nothing to worry about. They're rich and they're on TV. They don't have to be concerned about these parenting issues. So can you talk a little bit more about her, everything that she did and and her network. Yeah, so Huffman, uh, who's married to William H. Macy, so they already have this kind of storybook, fairy tale, celebrity life. They have two daughters. And in the book, go into some detail about just the insecurity that Huffman had as a parent, saying she was afraid to overdo it, but didn't want to let them fail on their own. She stressed out over planning vacations. Is it structured enough? Is it enriching enough? Is it relaxing enough? How do I do all of this at once? They went to see some occupational therapists and some specialists over the years for their daughters. And she kind of felt like she was doing the right thing by seeking outside help. She spoke a lot about how she was always looking to get expert opinions, a stack of books on parenting on her nightstand, talking to her friends about what they're doing for their kids at a certain stage in life. She also got some of that information and gave some of that guidance through her blog called What the Flicka. And it was kind of along the lines of scary mommy of this like slightly snarky take on parenting. And kind of solidarity, we're all in this together. And they sold these, you know, good enough mom mugs. And it was kind of preaching this idea that you don't have to be perfect. Nobody has to be a perfect parent. Yet she still sought out that she wanted to be a perfect parent, and she didn't know how to. And she was very willing to take advice from others, perhaps too willing uh, to just take advice at face value without questioning it. I think most parents understand that feeling of, uh, am I doing enough for my child and you want to be comforted by others saying, no, don't worry, I'm dealing with the same thing. And then he said, okay, I don't have to worry about that. I'm still going to try to do everything I possibly can to give my child an advantage. And in this case, almost quite literally said, I'm willing to do anything to give my children an advantage. We'll come back to Huffman and and her role in in the sentencing and and what that meant for the entire case. Whether it's the actresses involved or just the the vintners and all these, just I've learned a lot about how much money people make in industries I am not in through this book. But do you get the sense from studying this and observing it that the celebrities were treated differently because they were celebrities ultimately by the courts? And I I don't mean, of course, they were treated differently because they got access to lawyers that most of us would never have access to. And so I'm not suggesting we should feel sympathy for them because they didn't get a fair day in court, because they get a more fair day or an unfairly uh, advantageous day in court than most people do. I think that the two kind of mega celebrities, maybe three, uh, 
were treated differently than the other parents who were charged in the case. Um, but I think all of the parents were treated differently than many other defendants in, you know, uh, these types of fraud cases are treated. And that came up during one of the set during a few of the sentencings that th- these people are just they're different. They're being treated differently because of who they have as their lawyers, because of what crime they committed, because of who they're, who they are. I do think it's worth noting, as you mentioned, the lawyers. I mean, this is just a who's who of former federal prosecutors who are now partners at White Shoe Law Firms. It was, I mean, you had, you know, former prosecutors from Enron and just you name it, they were somehow involved in this case. And that was extraordinary to kind of see them in action at really at the top of their game, arguing some of these, filing just motion after motion for their clients, even after a client pleaded guilty, continuing to file motions and sort of fight the case. It has parallels to the sports industry where sometimes you think athletes are treated worse and sometimes are treated better because they're athletes. But it's clear that in many of these cases, they are treated differently and sometimes better, sometimes worse. But uh, okay, so pulling back a, a little bit, the there's a lot of egregious misconduct that takes place in the case. I'm going to ask you first and then I'll give you my answer, but what did you find most egregious or disheartening or whatever negative word, you're the journalist, whatever negative word that you would want to use? So I think the worst case case examples, the ones that were most offensive were the, the ones involving the athletic and bribery scheme. So there was the testing, cheating stuff, which is bad, uh, certainly. But the part where parents were paying college counselor Rick Singer to help get their kid in as a recruited athlete, even when they didn't play the sport, and in some cases were staging photos of the kid to kind of put together their athletic profile, I think that's the most egregious because it's just so... there's There's no gray area there, right? It's just... It's just fraud. It's just lies. It's just deceit. And knowing what advantage recruited athletes get in admissions, it's just stealing a spot. And for the parents who brought their kid in on it, that brought it, made it even worse. And the judge has acknowledged that, that, you know, having the kid involved, having the kid know what was going on and encouraging them to do this is worse. Knowing how much people put into playing these sports for real and then just having someone sit on a piece of exercise equipment and take a picture of them and say like, oh yeah, they're, you know, MVP of their team. It's astonishing. It's creative. Like it's amazing how creative this scheme was and how complex it was and how many moving parts there were to it. And there's something kind of impressive about that, but it's also kind of horrifying. And it may be because I approach this with more of a athletics bias or a pro athletics bias, not professional athletics. I'm in, in favor of athletics. And for me, that the the athletes who worked so hard, as you mentioned, and then literally had their images used for these wealthy athletes to pose as athletes for to get the admission um, benefit was was horrifying and horrible. But I had two that were tied for for first for me that were the, the most disheartening. One was, and it's it's a different type of disheartening, maybe, but the idea that parents would take lengths to try to sabotage other children's efforts to get into colleges, knowing that there were limited spots and that they were spreading rumors about them. Yeah. I just found it so horrifying that one thing to help your own child. Uh, it's one thing to take someone from another child without them knowing it to use it to your advantage. But this is 
directly trying to push someone else down. There's something so petty so and that immature about it. Can get the benefit. Yeah, it was very Big Little Lies ish. That's where I. This was to me like the cross between Big Little Lies and Friday Night Lights and Law and Order. There's some legal movie mixed in, but then the other one, which brings up a another issue I want to talk about, was the, on the testing side. The ones who manipulated the testing, not just the, the flat-out cheating, which is obviously horrible, but the ones who manipulated the system so they could get accommodations. So they right, could so get taking advantage uh, of the system time. that had some weaknesses, um, clearly, and, it, and just exploiting those to the nth degree. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I have a, a son who has special needs, and to see people who take those laws and, and take those rights and use it solely to improve their chances to get a better score. It's just so horrible and so horrifying and, and sets back, I just think, the, the disability rights movement and makes people question the extra time that is right. provided. That it is casts so a shadow over the people who do get this extra time and for really valid reasons. And it's a shame because I don't know how we get past that to kind of make people understand that, no, there are people who use this, who need it and who deserve it versus the ones who are you know, just found a really lenient or generous uh, doctor to, you know, give them the approvals that they need. Enough about my disheartening experiences reading your book. The admissions question generally and the the privilege aspect of this, because I'll be honest, when I first read about this story, I, again, as a, as a pro athletics person said, this isn't an athletic scandal. This is a admission scandal. This is a privilege scandal. This is not about sports. I've come around on that a little bit. I recognize and And, and frankly, through reading your book, I, I've come around more on, on the, the role that sports played in this, which I, I do want to talk about. Um, but I want to talk first about the, the privilege aspect of it. And as you mentioned earlier, clearly uh, some of the judges were angered by the fact that these parents had everything and that still wasn't enough. And I think one of the lines was they they were on third base and they still needed to try to get an unfair advantage. The, the Varsity Blues scandal then superimposed on top of what's going on with the litigation involving affirmative action and the attempts to undo race as a factor in admissions and how that also has the privilege aspect. Yeah. So I covered the Harvard Affirmative Action trial with a bench trial in Boston in fall of 2018. It's now before an appellate court. There's actually another trial that's starting in North Carolina next month. The same plaintiffs there. I'll be covering that remotely a bit. And yeah, so those cases are about race-based affirmative action and this effort to dismantle the use of race as a factor in college admissions. And one of the most fascinating things about the Harvard case was ultimately the the favor isn't going to underrepresented minorities, to applicants of color or poor applicants. The favor is still, even with affirmative action in place, the advantage still goes to legacies, kids of donors, and athletes. Uh, by and large, they just have uh, so much more advantage than others. Their admit rates are so much higher than anyone else. And so there's something really fascinating to hear all these these cries and complaints about affirmative action when these other systems are still in place that completely skew access to elite higher education. So you've got, after covering the Harvard case and seeing 
the you know eighty six percent of recruited athletes there were admitted during a time period that they were looking at in the trial. Eighty six percent for a school that accepts about six percent total. I mean, it's astonishing. And these are not athletes who are going on to the pros, you know, by and large, but they're still given very special treatment and admissions. So I think the special treatment given to people who can pay full freight, the special treatment given to people who have connections, the special treatment given to people who can make donations above and beyond tuition, you can't ignore that. And then the special treatment given to athletes, good athletes, which often comes with being from money. We, we had exchanged the Atlantic article the other day that really talks about some of these non-revenue sports that are really an open door, you know, a really easy path, relatively easy path into some of these very selective colleges. The only people playing these sports at an elite level are ones who can afford private coaches and tens of thousands of dollars for travel teams and tournaments and things like that. This is not something that everybody can go just go out and do and get good at. Yeah, I mean, they are country club sports, either literally in the fact that you do need incredible resources. And that Atlantic article about the, I think they call them niche sports, and that parents are now coming around to the idea that, wait a minute, maybe this is a bad use of our time and our, our children's time to... And there was a fascinating point in the article that said uh, one of the parents realized they spent or one of the coaches said, you can spend all this time and money, but you're likely going to create the 80th or 90th best athlete in the country in that sport, which really only gets you into a D3 school. And I, I just thought there's so much wrong with that sentence. To just settle for Amherst or something, God forbid. Exactly. Um, the the Harvard and the Yale case and the other schools, and, and I think, as you said, North Carolina, and I think Texas is also in there. But the, the current administration seems to be clearly pushing these types of cases. And uh, as you said, if they are successful – the result, I think, questionably be more white privileged people in these schools. We're, we're going to go the opposite of the way that we would have hoped Varsity Blues would have pushed us. Without doubt. Absolutely. And I think the pandemic has actually pushed a lot of schools to rethink some of those artificial barriers for, for students who aren't coming from uh, privileged backgrounds. So it wasn't Varsity Blues that had a lot of that pushed a lot of schools to get rid of standardized tests. It was the pandemic and access to testing sites and as for the SAT and ACT. Test results are very closely correlated to wealth and to race and ethnicity, also to gender to some extent. So, you know, if you have a sixteen hundred on your SAT, there's a very good chance that you got test prep and you know could afford all that tutoring and stuff like that. Without that in the equation for admissions, that changes who schools are looking at and considering as viable candidates. But uh, it, it's kind of amazing that it wasn't this massive criminal enterprise that made that change. That's a good point. And, and I know that, that here at Tulane and lots of other schools were looking at going test optional or trying to figure out a better way to evaluate high school students. And that's what I, I find fascinating about Harvard and Yale and, and these other schools. And, and they deserve a lot of criticism for a lot of things they do. But this idea that, look, we could accept, if we wanted to, a class full of people who had a perfect SAT score. We, but we're trying to find diversity. And, and, and this would eliminate that or, or make it much more difficult to achieve that diversity. I, I imagine, is your assumption that this ends up in the Supreme Court eventually? Oh, 
Yes. I mean, and both sides are pushing for that. Students for fair admissions, the plaintiffs and the Harvard and UNC cases. I, ideally, this would end up with split circuit decisions and then have to go up to the Supreme Court. I should say ideally for them. Maybe not ideally for the status quo. Right. And I will say, like, I get plenty of reader emails uh over the years, since I've been covering college admissions, since I started writing about affirmative action from wealthy white students or their parents saying, my child has been discriminated against because he comes from Greenwich, Connecticut and is a white boy. And this is a shame and this is unfair. And it's, it really still surprises me. It shouldn't surprise me anymore when I get those messages, but it still does. And it's interesting, again, that Atlantic article, which did cite your article, talks about that, those parents saying, we're from, I forget if it was Greenwich or a town like that. We need to stand out more. If we lived in Kansas, it'd be different. But we're, we are being disadvantaged by being in this wildly advantaged community. Right. One other question, the, the affirmative action you talked about the efforts to try to get more first generation or alluded to the, the efforts to get more first generation students enrolled in four year colleges. And, and I've, I've been reading a lot about it and some, some some stuff you have written. And what was interesting to me was that the efforts they had made initially, I believe it was through lowering the application fee and just having more mailings to these families turned out to not be very successful. But what did turn out to be successful, or at least one thing, was providing better college counseling at the high school level and more one-on-one, which obviously made me think immediately of Varsity Blues and the role that the college counseling played. Can you talk a little bit about, because that was fascinating to see the how the parents treated the counselor and the counselor's knowledge. Yeah, so to put this in context a little bit, across the country, most High schools have a ratio of counselor to student of a, or one to about three to 400 students, right? And this is not just a college counselor. This is a guidance counselor who's also dealing with students who have disciplinary issues or are figuring out what career to go into. Like they're doing a whole lot. So the students, the kids whose families were involved in this case, they were by and large going to private schools where the ratio was 30 students to a counselor. This is some these are the ratios of dreams for, for most counselors. Where the counselors get to know the students really well. They know the families. They've known them for years. Right. They really understand their right. interests and what might make a good fit for the student, what type of school they should be looking at. The problem is some of them are a little bit too realistic for families' taste. The families don't always want to hear the hard truth that, yeah, your kid with a B-plus average and decent scores and two years on JV soccer, is he's fine but not really all that interesting and doesn't seem to have a passion and hasn't started a company or done volunteer work and they don't stand out. So maybe look at this tier of schools instead of this higher tier of schools. And that's just unacceptable for some of these parents. No, no reference intended there, but it's just that they, they won't stand for that. So they go to somebody who will give them the answer they want to hear, which in this case was Rick Singer, who said, you know, we got this. I've got a plan for you. Now, these college counselors at the high schools They often know the colleges very well. They have connections. They regularly speak to their counterparts at particular schools. A university will call them up and say, hey, tell me a little more about this person, things like that. But and and there are a few cases that we go into in the book where the counselor got a call asking for some more information or some flags were raised. And you see these counselors, they're kind of the closest thing we get to heroes in the book, but even they're not quite there. Uh, because ultimately they did back down. 
There's one in particular who, after a very intimidating discussion with Massimo Giannulli, Laurie Lachlan's husband, the counselor at that school essentially just regurgitated what the father had said to him. You know, yes, you told me that your daughter is a coxswain on a crew team where I will relay that information to the university and just kind of left it at that. And what you do have to wonder how much a college counselor, especially at a private school, will push back on a parent when ultimately the school wants its graduates to go on to the best schools. What incentive do they really have to (laughs) torpedo somebody's application somewhere if it would look good for the school for them to get in? And what incentive do they have to piss off a parent who's paying you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars in tuition to this high school and might have younger siblings and might raise a fuss if they get a little bit too start questioning them a little bit too much. So it's a complicated power dynamic there between these wealthy parents and the college counselor who's ultimately serving the parent, right? The parent is kind of their client there. It, again, it's fascinating that and you told the story so well in the book and then here again, just that they weren't getting the answers they wanted from the counselor. So they found someone who would give them the answer and who would be willing to go to the lengths to make that answer possible. And you spent a lot of time talking about him in the book and it's all incredible. And it, it felt like the origin story for the Joker or something where it's, oh, like I have this finished product and now I get why he became this person. And if a few things had gone a different way for him, maybe he wouldn't have been in this position. But a two-part question here. One is, can you sum up what made Rick Singer, Rick Singer? And then two is, what's your best guess as to how many other Rick Singers are out there? Because I imagine if this is happening out West, there's got to be an East Coast Rick Singer, right? Especially with Connecticut and New York and, and all these places, maybe not to that extent. And maybe they have a different origin story. I'll stop there, ask you those two, and then I have a follow-up after that. Start with your second question. There's definitely other people who are some variation of Rick Singer out there, right? He is certainly not the only person who was finding ways to game the admission system, who was encouraging clients to bend the truth or just outright lie on their applications. Uh, A colleague of mine at the journal came across a college counselor in Illinois who was encouraging clients to become emancipated from their parents so that they could get more financial aid even though these are like super wealthy families who could afford private college counselor and just ways of gaming the system, right? There's cheating rings every couple of years for the SAT. There are other people doing this for sure, to some extent, whether they're working with quite this tier client, whether they were charging quite this amount of money, I don't know, but I don't think Singer was the only one. Singer was a fascinating person to learn about and to write about. He grew up kind of lower middle class in a middle class suburb. He kind of had this big chip on his shoulder for much of his life. Super competitive guy. And everyone who knew him talked, whether they liked him or not, talked about how competitive he was and how he had this frenetic energy about him. He was just kind of bouncing around with all these ideas and so much to say. He was a workhorse. And like these are qualities that you often like in somebody who's working on your behalf, right? You want them to be competitive. You want them to get the job done. You want them to be efficient. But he obviously took that all a little bit too far. So he didn't go to a super elite college. He kind of bounced around to a few schools, finally graduated. He was a few years older than his classmates. He was a college coach for a little while. Didn't really pan out. He was a little too... Uh, a little too blunt with some of his players and his teams weren't always very good. So then he went into college counseling, but he 
through that process of being a coach, he learned about some of those weaknesses and some of those pain points for other coaches, like needing to fundraise for their programs while also recruiting, while also coaching. And that went on to help him a great deal later in his career. But he's, you know, some people loved him, some people didn't. But all in all, he, they, they kind of had the same couple of themes that they talk about the competitiveness, this energy, this drive. And really, he did like a lot of his clients. He did want to help them. And he had a completely legitimate college counseling business. And then he had this other operation. And I think it's you know important to note that not every client of his went down this path. Some chose not to. Some said, this sounds kind of sketchy. Some didn't even realize he was dangling this offer at the time. But enough did, obviously, that he made quite a bit of money going down this path, bribing coaches, bribing test proctors and things like that. Yeah, he's sort of like a Saul Goodman in some ways. Yes. Let's come back to the sports angle and tell me from your perspective, the the sports scandal part of it and, and what this says about the, the problems with college athletics and its role in admissions. Right. So everyone knows that football, men's basketball, like there are entire blogs devote, and podcasts, right, devoted to picking apart recruiting picks. Uh, you know, who's a five-star recruit? Oh my gosh, I can't believe they're choosing that person for outside linebacker, whatever. But so many of the other sports, the non-revenue sports, nobody pays attention to who's making those teams except the people making those teams and their parents and their teammates. So it was pretty easy to infiltrate that world because there wasn't much scrutiny of it from the public. And it turned out there wasn't much scrutiny from the admissions office either. And I think the thing that really astonished me throughout reporting this book was just how little oversight there was and how some of these coaches really had their own little fiefdoms, right? So women's soccer, nobody would think that a coach would put forward a name of somebody they want to recruit unless they were going to help the team. So it was kind of a sort of, why would you do that? Well, you would do it if you were getting some extra money on the side, perhaps, or there was you know some other win in it for you. But nobody really thought that that would ever happen. So nobody paid attention to it. If the person said, if the coach said that they're a good player, you're going to believe that they're a good player. And the admissions office doesn't really know the sport very well. They don't have the time or resources to really check all that. They take the coach's word for it. So I think that's kind of the biggest hole in the system was just trusting that the coaches had a particular best interest in mind that wasn't their own. And then I think also the lack of follow-up, right? So schools until after the scandal generally didn't do very much to make sure that people who were recruited actually joined a team. So you could be, you could get in as a recruit and then never play. And Singer had a line to give to his clients. Oh, tell them you got hurt. Tell them you hurt your foot. You need to focus on academics instead. And you just, you never need to show up again. And the fact that that worked every time is really quite astonishing, right? Like it was not nothing about the scheme itself is what brought it down. It wasn't somebody getting caught. It wasn't a coach. It wasn't some kid saying, I don't, I'm not a pole vaulter. I don't know what you're talking about. That all went through just fine. It was a completely unrelated criminal case that ultimately brought this down. But, you know, you have to wonder if that other case hadn't come about, how much longer would Singer have gone on? And it's interesting. <laughs> Two notes on that. One is my college roommate was on the golf team and then he quit the golf team after about a month and said, I'm just not interested in playing anymore. Now I have to think, wait a minute. <laughs> See, no, I'm not 
accusing my college roommate if he's listening. <laughs> but the other thing is, you're right. We talked about incentives earlier. There was no incentive for a coach to use a coveted spot on someone who couldn't help the team other than this incentive of getting money either for their own pocket or to help the program. Right. And there were many of them felt great pressure to be raising money for their teams, for their programs, whether or not the school said it was part of their job explicitly. They saw it as part of their job. So some of them put some of the money toward the program. The Stanford sailing coach, all of the money he got through these deals went to Stanford, which complicated the legal case then because it was hard to say that Stanford was a victim when they made out with an extra than half million dollars. But some of them did just pocket it and just took the money for themselves. Let's transition now to the to that case since you you mentioned it and it, it's it brings up some of the legal issues and what made it a uh, I think it might be probably a more complicated legal case than most expected because if you follow the story and if you read probably the first half of your book, you think, oh these people are going to jail for a long time. I don't know what they what the crime is, but this is really bad. And then you get the 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 arrests and everything, and it's it's going to make a good TV show or, or movie. That scene when they're all in jail, and maybe Aaron Sorkin can help you with some of the dialogue. But then you get to the actual sentencing and to the trial and the legal arguments, and I, and I won't bore everyone with the the charges. The weakness in the conspiracy theory, as you just suggested, is who was hurt by this. Can you talk a little bit about how the the sailing coach, how he went, I believe he was the first to be sentenced and that didn't bode well, or it seemed to not bode well for the prosecutors. Can you talk a little bit about why? And you mentioned because he didn't pocket all of the money, but can you flesh that out a little bit? Right. So there was this very complicated, and I am not a lawyer. My co-author is not a lawyer. I used to be married to one, so that kind of helped a little bit. We, We thought expertise from a lot of former federal prosecutors to make sure we really understood all of the the nuances of the charges and what the some of these arguments were. But essentially, John Vandemore, the Stanford sailing coach, he'd been charged with racketeering conspiracy. But he didn't take this money for himself. Uh, it all went to Stanford. So there was this argument about no loss, right? There was no discernible financial loss to Stanford as the victim. How do you punish somebody for a crime where there was no victim in a way. And I had his sentencing kind of, I was in the courtroom for that. And the first half of the sentencing was all about this no loss thing. And then it got, he was just kind of sitting there waiting for his part. And these lawyers were going back and forth about the loss, the no loss. And Vandemore ended up getting probation. He was on house arrest for six months, probation for two years. And that was kind of the first sign that this was a messier and more complicated case than prosecutors had perhaps anticipated. The next sign was in September of 2019, right before Felicity Huffman was sentenced. And the sentencings for two other parents was actually pushed back because there was this weird legal fighting going on about the no loss. The probation office had again said there was no financial loss to the victims, despite these parents paying all this money and you know somebody getting cheated out of a spot. So the prosecutors were saying, okay, let's use the amount they paid as a proxy for loss. And there was fights over that. And the judge ultimately sided with uh, the probation office and saying, okay, there was no loss, but that doesn't mean these guys are all going to get away scot-free and I will take each person's case individually. Because usually when it's when there's no loss and it, you know, these are first-time white-collar offenders, they're going to just get probation. So that sentencing, Felicity Huffman ended up being the first parent sentenced and prosecutors went in totally 
disheartened, expecting that she was just going to get probation. And this was just going to set a really bad precedent for all the other parents coming in the next few months. And the defense attorneys were thrilled. They, they thought, oh my gosh, you know, we're good here. When she got 14 days in prison, 14 days, not a huge sentence, not a long time by any means. But the fact that she got any prison time at all, when she was considered one of the less culpable parents in a way, the lowest dollar amount, said no to the second opportunity to do the scheme, that caused a lot of defense attorneys to kind of swallow hard and think, oh my gosh, this is really serious. We had one attorney tell us outside the courthouse right after, I have to go rewrite my sentencing memo because we'll look tone deaf if we ask for probation now. And it, that loss question has continued throughout the case. It seems fairly settled now that a number of parents have been sentenced to prison, but there are some parents who are continuing to fight the charges and I imagine it'll come back up at trial. And, and it's so interesting because the argument, and it comes up in other college sports scandals and the FBI investigation into college basketball, where the victim, as you said, clearly the students who lost the spot, the admission spot, because those students took those spots. But the judge said, well, that doesn't count as a right. as the harm in this case. What's the monetary harm? And then, as you said, the gain, they said, well, that's not a proper measure either. And it, it pushed the sentencing guidelines down. And so it was just fascinating from the expectations perspective. What I, it seemed like the, the prosecutors went in thinking they were going to get some heavy jail time. Absolutely. That's what they were aiming for at the beginning in their original sentencing memos and plea agreements. And then it goes to, wait a minute, we may not get any jail time because of, of this. And then to back up. Yeah. So we got five months, eight months, and it, it just changed. So do you think, and there's the story is still part of it to be told, but do you think the prosecutors consider this to be a success? Publicly, yes. Privately, I think it's mixed, right? They have criminal charges against more than 50 people. They've gotten guilty pleas from dozens of them, but it is not the amount of time that they expected, not by a long shot. Is it enough time to discourage others from taking such action? We'll have to see. The judge, one of the judges has made it very clear that that's part of why she was sentencing to them, them to prison was so that their friends didn't do this, didn't try to do this too. But no, I think the, the chorus will continue of these people who got special treatment, they got off easy, they got a slap on the wrist, things like that. I think we'll see after the trials next year of those who pleaded not guilty, if they are found guilty and are sentenced, what those sentences look like and how those differ from sentences of those who pleaded early will be really interesting. And, and it's also going to be interesting just in the sentencing arguments, some of the things you highlighted, how tone deaf, as you said, some of the, the, the submissions were. And I think my favorite or least favorite was the parent who complained that he didn't even get his money back, the bribe. Yes. Yes, there were there were those sentencing memos. First of all, these people were all saints, according to those memos, with 40 people writing letters on their behalf to the judge. And there was something kind of humorous about all of it. And, you know, we read every single one of those memos as we were reporting on the book and as we were covering each sentencing for, for the journal as well. That was a favorite. Um, the ones who had their kids write in support of them saying, you know, my mom's not a bad person. She was trying to do the best for me. She was one of the most, uh, what was it? One of the, the most generous people in Aspen or something like that. Yes. Yeah. has given me the opportunity to be an architect on multiple of their homes, which is really giving. That's, that is, I've never had an architect work on multiple homes for me. And people who had, my parents got divorced as a kid. So that's why I went down this bad path and there were some interesting arguments. And they, they're a really down-to-earth person. I've seen them covered in Greece from 
changing the oil in their private plane. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of that scene in Fletch. Last point, and then I'll let you go. What, one thing that fascinated me about Rick Singer and the broader themes from, there's so many broad themes to pull from the story, but this idea of expert culture, and you mentioned Felicity Huffman being, and many other parents, being desperate for expertise and desperate for someone to tell them how they should do something. And it seems to have spawned, or maybe it's been spawned for a while, this group of people that hold themselves out as experts in areas and are selling the perception that they're an expert, but they're not actually an expert. But there are desperate parents who say, I want to make sure I am doing everything I can for my child. Let me Google who can help in this area and you find someone and it would be like the two of us saying we're now experts in i don't know the calming influence of the color of wood that you use in your <laughs> home and parents would be like oh i need my children to be calm in the home tell me what wood i should buy and parents would buy actually maybe we could talk about that after the fact as a right. as a business opportunity but it just seems there's just ironic that someone with with no real expertise i mean he had some given his background right so he you said he did some real college counseling right and there are associations for college counselors for independent college counselors and there's no licensing but there are certificates you can get at ucla and other graduate programs you can get degrees in school counseling and you can join these membership organizations where you have to agree to a code of ethics and a code of standards. He was not part of any of those. He was just not a member of those things. He just kind of operated in his own orbit. And that was a big, should have been a big red flag to people if they knew enough about that industry. But most don't, right? It's very much a word of mouth industry. Oh, you know, little Janie got into Princeton and here was her college counselor. So they must be good. I'll use them. That sort of thing. Little Janie was a great student, by the way. Uh, Little Janie was fantastic. She was also MVP of her sailing team. But it's, you know, it's so so word of mouth. And these people, one of the appeals of Rick Singer was that he was kind of unpolished, right? He showed up in a tracksuit everywhere. He was really blunt. Uh, He didn't sugarcoat things. And for some, like, they kind of liked that, that he wasn't like in a nice suit and tie and, you know, nice buffed shoes. He was wearing sneakers all the time. So there was some appeal to that. He wasn't this like perfect professional guy, but the fact that he was in many ways, not at all an expert and he understood some parts of the admission system very well. He knew them well enough to exploit them. But as we learned when he was an expert witness and was being deposed in this completely unrelated civil case where he was an expert witness um, in a case for civil friends, rather, in D.C., I mean, just some of his ignorance comes out and shines through in really funny ways that he just kind of doesn't know what appropriate times are for a runner to be considered for a college team or that how they calculate grades or GPAs or things like that. It may have been a red flag, but I guess for some parents, it was a green flag. It was, this is the guy we want because he's not going to follow the rules and we just want the result. We don't care about the rules. Don't tell me how you're doing it. Just do it. Right. We want it. We want this done. Well, thank you so much. This was great. I I enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it to all listeners. It's unacceptable. It's available everywhere, including on Audible. Um, you don't read it on Audible, though, do you? You have somebody. If somebody else who reads it, correct. Okay. But, but thank you so much. And I look forward to the next stage of the story and the book and the TV show and everything that comes out. Be well. Thank you all for listening. And thanks to today's sponsors, RitVest. For all of your RitVesting needs, RitVest. And Four Seasons Car Wash. 
need your car washed in the spring, summer, fall, or winter, Four Seasons Car Wash is the place for you. And I will see you all next time between the lines. Stay-